We're going to transition. We're in the last, and probably all of you guys, like your favorite theme when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. There's something so exciting about it, isn't it? It's like one of those ones where I, I just wish they would talk more about self-control and explain it. And um, No, that's probably not any of us in the room. We're in Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 and 23, and this is what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life that we have in you through your Son, Jesus, and by the Spirit. And we pray this morning that we, we... you would set us free to be the people you created and redeemed us to be, that we would be free to worship you in all areas of our lives. So help us to hear from you and lead us, we pray in your name. Amen. Big idea this morning that we're going to take like a real slow journey towards is that when the Spirit produces self-control in you, he enables you to live a life of love. There's no slide for this, so don't worry. You just got to listen. When the Spirit produces self-control in you, he enables you to live a life of love. Now, let me ask you this question. When you think of the opposite of self-control, what would you think of? Just throw out some answers. What's the opposite of self-control? You. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that honest confession. What else? What's the opposite of self-control? Chaos, did someone say? Yeah, chaos. Anything else? Selfishness, yep. Maybe impulsiveness. What about self-indulgence? Self-indulgence. And as far as the Greek goes, that would be the opposite. The Greek word for self-indulgence is this word akrates. It refers to the inability to keep your desires under control or to resist temptation. And it happens to be this word that Jesus uses when he confronts the Pharisees or the religious leaders in Matthew 23 when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Self-indulgence, self-control. Self-control is what Paul will say here in Galatians 5 as, as, as one of the facets of this fruit of the Spirit. And it comes from this word in Greek, inkratas, referring to having power over a thing or mastering or controlling or restraining something, like controlling oneself or possessing power over yourself. But when the New Testament talks, authors talk about self-control, they're talking about your ability, yes, to restrain yourself, to practice this self-control, to resist something, but they're also talking about more than that. Ronald Fung, he offers this amazingly helpful definition for this word when he says this. He says, The New Testament refers to self-control as the mastery of the self 
and the fashioning of one's life in the way God desires. Mastery of the self, this ability to control your emotions, your desires, your thoughts, but also fashioning your life in a way that God desires. So why is self-indulgence then the opposite of self-control? Because it's the absence of the power or ability to control your desires, your emotions, your life. Your desires are part of you, but if you're self-indulgent, you're not in control of your desires. You're controlled by them. Your desires rule you. And let me be clear, desires are natural. All of us have them. All of us are filled with longings and dreams and ambitions for our lives. But if we're honest, more often than not, our desires are these powerful propellers and indicators of what we love, we value, and are likely to pursue in life. See, our problem is that our desires are so intense that we struggle to control ourselves. And lots of us have areas where we're actually like mightily self-controlled. And others where we just feel woefully weak at practicing restraint. Some of us cave at the sight of chocolate. Just can't resist. But for others of us, it's not food. It's online shopping. For some of us, it's late night scrolling on our phones, and yet for others of us, it's porn or patience with others. Some of us, it's rehearsing how someone hurt us and what we wish we had done. Some of us, we might be controlled with our finances, but not with our words. We might be disciplined in our workouts, but not in our thoughts. We might be disciplined in the way that we live and interact with others, but then not in the way that we criticize ourselves. Some of these are socially acceptable and some of these aren't. Some of these are way more destructive than others, but beneath all of these behaviors are longings, desires. In his book, A Holy Longing, Ronald Rollheiser will say this, there is within us this fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul, at the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion, lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire, what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and hope they bring us. That is our spirituality. I'll go on to say, Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so spirituality is about what we do with that unrest. And that's that question, what do we do with that unrest, with our longings and desires. There's this guy, his name is John Tyson, and he highlights three different ways that human societies and human beings tend to respond to their desires. They all start with R, so they're nice and memorable. We release our desires, we repress our desires, and we redirect our desires. We release our desires, we repress our desires, and we direct them. There should be a slide for that. There you go. We release our desires. Look at that first one. What do we do with our longings when we take approach them in this way? We pursue them. The underlying belief here is that life is about being happy. And so you follow your heart. You listen to your heart. Your desires serve as a cue for what you should pursue. 
you know what you want and what you need best, so you pursue your longings. And life is at its best under this idea when, and most free when you're pursuing what you want, when you want, how you want it. You live for pleasure. That's what life is about. Paul will talk about this type of mentality, actually, in Second Timothy chapter 3, where he says, But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of, of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in our time, people can treat our society, our city, our families, our friends, neighbors, as this one guy, Alan Mann, says, like a blank canvas for your own self-definition, expression, and enjoyment. When we live like this, it's so easy to binge, to overconsume, to overspend. It's so easy to go into debt. It's so easy to become jaded, though, too. Because when we live like this, we are constantly pursuing this pleasure that can't fully satisfy Our hearts are constantly restless, looking for their rest, for that next thing. You live kind of like you're on this hamster wheel of desires, waiting for the next hit of endorphins, believing that the next thing we pursue will finally give us rest until we get it, and it gets old, and we need something else. And it's not simply that we have this restlessness within us. There's also something beyond us, outside of us, that prompts us, that tells us, that there is a need that we have and this product will scratch the itch for us, will meet that need, will finally give us what we needed in life, that life wasn't complete until we had that thing. And you don't actually have to look much farther than your phones for this. Research from 2021 indicated that people in the U.S. would check their phones 96 times a day or about once every 10 minutes. And you might say, look, we're different than our neighbors down south, but I think when it comes to our phone habits... I don't think we're that much farther off. And I know for myself, I'm not as free from my phone as I would like to be. In July, my family went away to Penticton for a week of rest and recharge, and I turned off my phone for the whole week. No sports articles, no news, no emails, no, no online shopping, no reading, no none of that. Or reading, yeah, sorry. Reading, yeah. Playing with my family, conversing, slowing down. Now, if you know about uh, basketball, you know that the first week of July is the very beginning of uh, free agency. So usually when all these transactions, trades, and, and signings happen, and that happened to be the week we're in Penticton. So I was uh, dealing with this kind of tension within myself of wanting to know more, but also having this personal commitment of wanting to have this week to disconnect. I couldn't check, though. I wanted to check. I wanted to know. And I'd find myself talking to Joel about basketball and wondering what was happening, talking about it, and, you know, if there was any news. And he would say, do you really want to know? Do you want to know? And I'd be like, fine, I don't want to know. I don't. I, I can make it. I can do this. You know, on the flip side, not having my phone for that week, I found myself so much more present to God. So much more present to my emotions, to my thoughts, to my family. 
I felt sensitive to God's leading and his voice. I was attentive to these patterns of thinking that were unhealthy and not aligned with God's word and my life, his truth. It was so life-giving to actually do it for that week. See, what my phone and your phone can become in our lives is this cheap replacement for the life that God wants for you. It can be so easy to use our phone as this filler for those moments when you're discouraged, frustrated, lonely, waiting, in the middle of an argument, filling that moment with distraction, with news, with entertainment, or whatever. And over time, our phone and all of our other desires really easily replace and suppress our desires for God's presence in our life. These things are supposed to help free us to be more efficient or effective, to be more connected with the things that we love and care about in life have become the very things that we find ourselves actually enslaved to. They end up demanding more of us. See, releasing our emotions doesn't ultimately lead to this lasting joy, but instead this exhausting loop of pursuit for more because no matter what we find, it's never fully enough. Some of us seek to release our longings and desires. Others seek to repress our desires. The opposite of releasing them is to repress them. And the underlying belief here is twofold. One is that life is about simply being good or honorable. But secondly, our desires are the source of much suffering and should be suppressed because they are unreliable guides. We repress our desires because we fear them. And this is where many religious people will land. This is where the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day landed. Because they don't trust themselves and they don't trust their desires. They create many rules as a means to keep a safe distance from dishonor, from pain, from shame. If I just muster enough willpower to hold out and restrain myself, I can be the good person I want to be. The thing is, these rules will often become repressive. And even those who create them will fail to even live up to them. There's several problems with this way of living. One of them is that these rules become so impressive, oppressive, sorry, even for those people who, are try, who, who create them. Jesus talks about the Pharisees being like these kinds of people in Matthew 23. Where he says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but not to do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They, the Pharisees would have these different rules and to live by so that they would not sin against God, but they were these additional things. It was almost like they wanted this massive gap and barrier between themselves and what could potentially lead to sin. And part of it was they were afraid of themselves and their own desires. But here's the thing. See, some of us, it just so happens, are pretty self-controlled. Maybe it becomes a bit easier, a bit more disciplined. The thing is, you might be able to change your behavior, but you actually haven't dealt with like the internal work. What Jesus talked about in the, with the Pharisees in that cup, that you haven't actually addressed what's within the cup. You might be able to change your behavior, but you haven't dealt with your desires outwardly. You could take great care to look good, ordered, healthy, but inwardly there's this absence of control over your life. Your desires control you. Inside, you're not full of generosity, but this insatiable desire for more. 
And when people come around you, there isn't a spirit of generous love. They, when they come around you, you actually rob joy. You rob peace. You sap energy from others. This is why Jesus, in Matthew 23 again, will speak to the Pharisees and say that though they look like they have self-controlled and are disciplined men of God, they are still greedy and self-indulgent. The deep need to be changed from the inside out remains there. They haven't addressed it. They've just changed the exterior. Richard Lovelace, he'll talk about how people who live like this, their understanding of sin focus on the behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower and ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surface. See, the problem with repressing and just trying to live a life that represses our desires is you're never really going to be given a picture for what to pursue, just what to restrain. It shows us what we should avoid, but not what we should want. But you know what else is really dangerous about this approach to our desires when you just seek to repress them? is that even if you do have a measure of self-control in your life, in particular with other people, you could fool everybody in the room. You could talk well, present well, sing songs, all the while none of those submerged continents have changed. But because you're a good actor, you're seen as good, honorable, generous. Internally, though, your heart could be hard and cold. And there's a real danger here because then you can feel like you're actually like living the life you're supposed to. Like you've won, like you've made it. Like that is success. But all those things underneath have not been changed. And so those who are closest to you, they'll know. But everyone else can think, man, they're a pretty gentle, kind, loving, humble person. Pretty generous. Eugene Peterson writing of the prophet Jeremiah's greatest fear, said this, he feared getting what he wanted and missing what God wanted. It's the only thing worthy of fear. What a waste it would be to take these few eternity-charged years we are given and squander them when we could be vehemently human and passionate with God. Of all the things to fear... That's the one that's worthy to fear. That you might get what you really wanted in life. That you were satisfied. That people saw you in a certain way. You repressed your desires. You pretended you were all good. You settled for a definition of good enough when God's magnificent vision for your destiny was on offer and you settled for something else. You can live a life pursuing pleasure only to become a slave to your desires or you can live a life trying to repress your emotions and your desires. In one version, you are always being pulled by the waist in a different direction by your desires. But in the other, you're constantly playing this game of whack-a-mole, trying to suppress your emotions and your desires. One tends towards excess, but the other tends towards absence. Both fail to respect our humanity. Both fail to set us free from our inability to control ourselves. Both fail to turn us into the people we were created to be. 
But this third option is that we can redirect our desires. That neither, you neither suppress your desires or live as if every desire, and live as if every desire is right. That it'll bring life and rest that we long for. It's not that. You can't release or repress your desires. You need to redirect them to someone, to some, somewhere. So you have desires that are God-given, but you also have other loves, other desires within you. And you love those things more than God, the Creator. The problem is that your desires, your longings and loves are disordered, and you're enslaved to the power of your desires. You don't rule them, they rule you. You were created with longings deep within you for intimacy, to be fully known, to be accepted, to be loved, to have a purpose, to create and build, to learn and to grow. You were created for the divine, by the divine, with this purpose, to enjoy this world with him. And you won't be at rest until you have him. And yet, the gospel says that God was so set on you that he so desired you, on reconciling you to himself, on rescuing and restoring you, that he became one of us in Christ Jesus. That he came to us and lived the perfect life. He didn't live a life ruled by desires, nor was he afraid of his desires, repressing them. Jesus Christ mastered himself and fashioned his life in the way that God the Father wanted. And the longings of the Father's heart were his very longings. See, what God wanted was you. And so he came and he laid his life down for you to set you free from being a slave to your desires, to from being afraid of your de- desires. His longing was to set you free, to give you a purpose, to heal you, to forgive you, to empower you by dwelling in you through his spirit. See, the goal of life isn't to be happy, so, that, so you need to follow your desires. It's not to get rid of your desires because they're all misleading. It's to be reconciled to God and renewed by him so that you can love him and others the way you were created to. You need to be reconciled and have your heart renewed by him. But how? You need his, to see his love for you. You need to see his love for you. It's only when we see his love for us, how much he loves you, that he wants you and knows what's best for you. Only then can you begin to love him in response. Only then can you begin to truly love others with that kind of love that he has. Only then can you begin to direct your life in the way that he desires. Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20 and 21 will say this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved you and gave himself up for you. It's because Jesus loved him and gave himself up for him that Paul is freed to lay down his life in response. But Paul will say something really similar immediately following the fruit of the Spirit's description in Galatians 5, verse 24 and 25. Right after the fruit of the Spirit are listed, this is what it says. It says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
crucified the flesh with its passions and desires sounds like a kind of weird phrase. It's just another way of talking about turning away from your old life and turning towards Jesus. Crucifixions were painfully slow, but they were decisive. And that's what Paul says we've done to our old humanity, to our old natures. We've condemned it. Renouncing those old things that brought joy will be painfully slow at times. But it's certain. And so that's the second thing we need to do. We need to turn away from our old nature, from releasing and repressing our desires and direct our attention, our desires and love towards Jesus and his way. That's what putting your trust in Jesus means. But finally, Paul will say this. He says, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. You need to walk in step with the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit are not these natural traits. Like we hear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And we think, well, maybe I have those to some extent on occasion. when It's a good day and I slept well and I ate well. And things are going well in my life. But the thing is, the fruit of the Spirit are not natural traits or abilities or talents. They are godly traits expressed socially amongst one another. Paul is trying to describe what happens in amongst the people of God. The fruit of the Spirit originates and is produced by the Holy Spirit working in us. And so self-control, at least the way the New Testament is talking about it, as mastering ourselves and fashioning our lives in the way God desires, is not possible apart from trust in Jesus and the Spirit's work in our life. So when you put your trust in Jesus, you receive the Spirit, and the Spirit begins to take initiative in your life leading you. He forms within you new desires, reordering your loves, and he gently puts pressure on us, leading us in the way of Jesus. Our task is actually to pay attention to his leading and control, and this isn't passive. He leads us to not be okay with our sin, with broken relationships, to not be okay with self-indulgence, to pay attention to our desires and our thoughts and emotions. The Spirit of God leads, and our task is to pay attention to His leading and to wait on Him. Which makes me think of a, a passage that I think mo- many will, will know here, and if you've been up at Anvil, you've probably sung a song about this from Isaiah 41. So they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with eagles, with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Isaiah likens those who wait on God, on the Lord, like eagles. He likens them to eagles. The other day, my family and I, we, um, we tried to do at least once uh, uh, in the summer, we tried to go to Lighthouse Park. It's just a beautiful spot, sweet views. The kids like it. They can handle that, that length of a hike and that incline and going back up. But when we were there, we saw, um, if you know what lighthouse, the lighthouse looks like, there was a huge bird sitting on, right on the top. And as I watched, I'm like, oh, it's an eagle. Now, this is not this eagle. This is just internet eagle. But but I was just sitting there watching it as it was just perched there. 
looking out, and I was like, man, that's, that's incredible how, how huge it is, how, the view that this eagle must have. And one of the things I learned recently is that eagles have massive wings that can stretch over seven feet. But they actually have quite small hearts that grow tired with constant flapping. So if you've ever seen eagles in the air, you probably notice you don't actually see them doing a ton of this. See, when eagles are perched up on top, they will wait patiently for the right wind to blow. They don't flap a ton. They wait for that right wind to blow, and then they use the wind to glide and soar through the air. But what they'll do as they wait is they will test the breeze by shuffling and moving their wings a bit. And then when the right wind comes by, they will launch out with this wind supporting them as they go out. And that kind of picture is what it is like to walk in step with the Spirit. This is where we find our power. Not in ourselves. You don't have to strenuously flap your wings to do this. You have to wait and follow his lead. I read that the eagles will sometimes have to wait very, very long periods of time before the right wind comes for them to leave their perch. You have to wait and follow his lead. Sometimes it feels for way too long. And when you do, there will be this wind that blows behind you with each flap of your wings. And he will liberate you to be able to fully love him and others and yourself. You're still having to move your wings. You're still participating, but you are not doing it in just your own power and strength. You won't be able to. See, you need a a way of life. We need a way of life that puts us in positions where we can receive the wind of the Holy Spirit. Where we can meet with Him and be ministered to Him and be empowered and encouraged. And this is for all of us. And so this is why it matters that we gather to worship. Because we believe that God inhabits the praise of His people. That He meets with us and speaks to us. This is why it matters that we spend time in prayer and reading scripture during the week, coming to him in communion, serving others, having regular times of rest, being in a community group. All of these ways are matter because they're these sacred pathways for us to receive his grace. They put us in positions to be able to catch that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you can try to live sort of haphazardly and sporadically, but it doesn't generally work. And when we live like this, when we come and place ourselves waiting and watching and following his lead, what we will begin to see is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control manifested not just in your own lives but in us as a community. It won't be the one characteristic. It'll be all of them, like this jewel with all these different facets that shine brightly. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's not a bunch of different fruit on a tree. It's one fruit with all these different facets. And so for us, the question can be, do you need to be reminded of his love today? 
Come to the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Have you settled for longings and for things that cannot give you rest? Come to the one who says, if you're tired and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Have you felt enslaved by your desires or afraid of them this week? Come to the one who came to set you free. Have you felt like none of the fruit of the Spirit, let alone self-control, are particularly evident in your life? Come to the one who says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Come to the one who invites sinners and saints to his table of mercy and grace. You don't have to bring anything but yourself to this table. And that's all he's wanted and desired is you. So, Father in heaven, we come to you now. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus because you desired to reconcile and restore us to right relationship with you. You came to set us free, to forgive us, to heal us, to empower us to live the lives of love that you intended for us. So for all the moments, Lord, where we've actually just lost sight of your love and care for us, would you help us to see and receive your love this morning? For all those moments where we just pursued other things and we just find ourselves weary, tired, with very little left. We come to you right now, believing you can give us rest. You can satisfy the restlessness within our hearts. You can settle it. For those of us who have felt enslaved to our desires and afraid of them, set us free, Lord, with the wind of your Holy Spirit to live in a new way. Trusting that you know the desires of our heart. You know what's best for us. And you are good. Lead us this week, Lord, in being a people who wait on you and follow your lead. And we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. One of the ways we get to come.